Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents. You're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Titanium Vault, hosted by RJ Bates III. Here's RJ. Hello, and welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, RJ Bates. Today, I'm sitting down with Nick Legamaro. Nick, how are you doing? Doing great, RJ. Thanks for having me on. Man, I'm just saying, I, I that took me a couple of times to get your name out. I, <laughs> I think I jinxed myself there by saying I don't make mistakes and I don't edit a whole lot out of these. So that's uh, that's pretty funny. So, and Nick, why don't you Don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel too bad about it. I still have a hard time saying it. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself and tell everybody what it is that you do in real estate investing? Yeah, my name is Nick Legamaro. Uh, um, I'm here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, also in Houston and San Antonio. Uh, our primary, our primary uh, real estate model is seller financing. So uh, we, we look for properties, we find them, we fix them, we sell them, and we, uh, we write the notes to uh, the buyers, for the buyers that can't go out and get, you know, traditional financing through a through a bank like Chase or Fargo or somebody like that. Cool. So I know we want to dive into that. I know there's a ton of listeners that are interested in that business model. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's kind of go back to the beginning and and how did you get your start in real estate investing and and when you got your start? Was it in seller financing or did you start in another form of uh, real estate? No, I, I, actually, it sort of evolved into that and. I probably got started in real estate probably in the early 2000s, probably 02, 03. And uh, to be quite honest with you, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff going on back then. Uh, there was very few uh, REI groups. There was nothing on the internet. There was no really um, what I would call quality educators, coaches, mentors, whatever you want to uh, call them. And so... I did what everybody else did back then, and it was sort of like fix and flip, and because that was really the only thing that was going on. And I did a lot of lower end fix and flips, and basically turnkeyed them and sold them uh, to investors as rental properties that they put in the portfolio. Well, you know, 07, 08 comes, and uh, all hell breaks loose, and um, I was fortunate enough to pretty much get out fairly unscathed, unlike a lot of other people at that time. And as a result of that, I didn't have a business, uh, uh, at least a profitable business that I could continue to do on a full-time basis. Because I was, I was a full-time real estate investor at that time. I was not a passive uh, weekend, do two, three deals a year kind of investor. Um, so I basically went back into corporate America and as a result of that, I realized real quick that that is not what I wanted to continue to do for a long period of time. As most people uh, that once they get the taste of real estate and um, the freedom that allows you the, the, the flexibility and the creativeness that you can bring uh, to the to the table, it's really hard to it's really hard to go the other direction. So, you know, I did that till about, oh, Oh, 10, oh, 11, give or take. Um, and I go, man, I really got to figure out how to crack this real estate code. And I, uh, but at, by that time, uh, there was a lot of information available. And there's a lot of people out there that were quote unquote gurus, if you would, um, that had a lot of information. 
some of it verifiable, some of it but not. And that's a, uh, so I, re I really took about six months while I was still working. And I said, I'm going to forget everything that I know. Now I went back and I really started trying to analyze and dissect what people were saying I should do or recommendations. And really what it all led to at, at that point in time was wholesale. Because wholesaling uh, to me, uh, philosophically made the most sense. It was low risk. Uh, it had uh, it had high returns if you managed it correctly, and it was very scalable. Uh, and it was something you can do not only in your local market, but you there was definitely ways that you could scale it uh, and do it in uh, other markets uh, besides the one that you were living in. So if you decided you want to live in the mountains of Montana uh, and do business in you know Shreveport, Louisiana, there was definitely a way that you could make that happen. So I was very intrigued. I was very intrigued by that. So that's sort of what I, how I got my feet back uh, in the game. And as a result of that, I was very cautious. I didn't have a lot of money uh, at the time, like most people that get into real estate uh, uh, and do. A lot of some too, but some don't. And I was obviously very cautious with that capital because it was my money, not somebody else's. And two, uh, I had to make it. I hadn't figured out how to make this work. Um, so I basically uh, started doing what most people do, which is sending out yellow letters and postcards and uh, in a very specific uh, demographic and uh, price point because I, I didn't know what I was going to do, honestly. And as a result of that, <clears throat> um, I got a call uh, for a property on a very, very modest, I would call two bedroom, one bath, 700 square foot, 1940s build uh, house. And the lady said she was going to be moving to retiring from General Motors and moving to California, asked me if I'd be interested. And I said, sure. I didn't know. I had never wholesaled before. I said, sure, I'd be interested. What else was I going to say? Right. And so I, I said, uh, what do you, I, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. I said, I first thing I asked her how much she wanted. She goes, well, I want about $25,000 for this back in 2011, I believe. And she goes, uh, but it's rented. And you can't disturb the tenants. So I went down the path. I went to look at the property. I could only look at it from the exterior. I go, oh, okay. I guess that's what a $25,000 house looks like. <laughs> so I had no idea. Uh, and I said, okay, I guess I'll go back to the, to the office and make an offer and see what I can do from there. And, you know, just open the next page of the manual and wholesaling and figure out what the next step is. Well, as I was driving down the street, there was a sign that said Vende Casa. I had a little bit of Spanish. I knew what that meant. Right. And I go, well, let me give them a call. Let me call them, not knowing who they were. And she answers the phone. She goes, oh, I said, do you speak Spanish? I mean, speak English. She said, yes. I go, I have this house for sale. I saw your sign. I have this house for sale. Would you be interested in buying it? And she goes, uh, I don't know. Give me the address. And I give it to the address. I go, you can't go inside, though. You can only look at it. She goes, how much do you want for it? I said, $35,000. Before I even have it under contract. So, moving on in the story here, uh, she literally calls me. I got about a 30 minute drive back to where I was heading. I didn't even get back to where I was going. And she calls me and she goes, Hey, I got a buyer outside your house. I go, Okay. I, go, they, I freaked out. I go, They can't get inside. There's somebody inside. There's 10. She goes, No problem. She goes, If you, uh, they said, if you'll take $32,000, they don't need to see inside and not pay cash. I go, cool. I said, I guess that's a good deal. I go, how much do you want? She goes, I want $2,000. I 
Right, so 32 minus 2 is 30, less 25 to the, to the seller, make five grand. I said, okay, that's not a bad start, but it's a lot more than I had yesterday. Right. Well, fast forward, fast forward, and get this where we get to the seller financing piece. I go, I, I, you know, I have another conversation with this person. I go, that was pretty quick. You have you had buyers that have twenty five, thirty thousand dollars cash laying around. They're looking to buy. She goes, yeah, I got a lot of them. And I started doing some research, and there's a lot of people out there that I would call cash rich and credit poor. They have a lot of cash. They don't have the capacity to go down and get a loan. So their only alternative is to go into a lower end property such as this and pay cash and then do the work and sweat equity and then eventually live in the property. I go, well, let me ask you a question. If I could find nicer properties for you that were 80 or $100,000, this is at the time, these same properties today are, you know, 130, 140, 150, as you, would, as you know, right. in the areas as everything appreciates. Uh, I go if, if if I found something in eighty or hundred in the eighty to hundred thousand dollars range, do you have do you think there's somebody that would interest, be interested in putting twenty thousand dollars down, fifteen thousand dollars down, and then we would write the note. And there that's and she goes absolutely. And so you know four hundred plus transactions later, here we are today, um, where we've made a pretty good business out of the of the seller financing. Uh, model specifically in the Dallas Fort Worth tech, uh, Dallas Fort Worth, San Antonio, and Houston markets. So you transitioned from wholesale, like your initial intentions were to wholesale, but you transitioned pretty quick from wholesaling to the seller financing pretty quickly, right? Absolutely, because you know I learned a long time ago. There's a reason why banks are in the banking business. Banks are in the bank. Right. Banks are in the business to loan money and make money off of amortization when they lend out money to. Uh, to buyers, uh, they don't own real estate. It's pretty pretty uh, interesting concept. And why is that? Well, the main reason is they don't have to. <laughs> they don't have to own real estate. They can hold the paper, you know, put the liability and responsibility on somebody else, and just collect the check every day. So, you know, I don't know if you have a mortgage on your house. A lot of people do. I have one still. Uh, was originally a uh, Wells Fargo now a countrywide note. Now it's Bank of America. Had it for years. Never had them once call me, right? You know, on anything. Matter of fact, I don't think I've ever called them on anything. All they get is my check every month in the mail for my for my mortgage. It's a great, it's a beautiful business. You know, if my air conditioner goes out, I don't go, I don't go call them. Right. You know, you know, it's just that simple. So I really started figuring out how I can still get passive income without necessarily having to do a buy and hold uh, strategy, and that's. It's just a different version. I mean, there's nothing wrong with buying and holding rental properties. Um, it's just a different path that you have to take to go down. So, so when you got started and you made that, you know, that call and you said, "Hey, you know, if I find an eighty to a hundred thousand dollar house, will you have buyers and can they put twenty thousand dollars down?" And she was like, "Absolutely." What were you planning on doing? Because you said you didn't have a whole lot of capital. So if you go find an $80,000 house, how were you going to purchase it and, and how were you taking down that property yourself to then create the note with the end buyer? Right. So that's a great question. So it was basically, it, it, there's different phases up to what we do. There's phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one is the acquisition side. So think of it just like a traditional uh, acquisition that you would go buy, fix, and flip, right? So uh, you go down to a bank, you get a hard money loan, you get private funds, whatever it would take to securitize 
that property so you can go and do phase one, which is basically buy and fix. So we would buy that property. So I'd go down and I'd get a you know, hard money loan, bank loan, private money, my money, whatever it took. I'd get it locked up. We'd, we'd, we'd fix it. And then we we basically build it to a retail finish out. But instead of putting it on MLS or to sell it to another investor, we would go we would go focus on uh, individuals that needed self financing, and that was what we did. And then from there, we go sell it. We write the note. We'd have to wrap the note temporarily. And then since we didn't have a lot of capital, you know. Early on, we had to sell all the notes, almost all of them, 100%, because that's how we would recapitalize, you know, the business to be able to grow it. So, but what's interesting is what we found out is that that same, say I have a property and I have that, let's just say that contract that we talked about earlier, or I sold it for 32 and I had it for 25 and I made $5,000. If I would have done the model that we do today with that same property, I probably would have uh, made fifteen or twenty thousand dollars even after selling the note and discounting the note and cap and, and cashing back out of the deal, and that would have probably taken me forty-five days. So the question becomes: Do I want five thousand dollars in a week or two to do a to a, do an assignment, or do I want you know four times that in forty days? And that was that was really the difference. And then it's like as long as there's not a you know, inventory is sometimes hard to get, as you all know. It's very competitive out there. So we didn't want to just try to do a bunch of $5,000 deals. But we can even, it's really was a wholesale, you know, wholesale model on steroids, if you will, because we're actually doing the same thing, doing a little bit of more work, but knowing the end result was going to be four times the return. And that's sort of how we evolved. Now today, we keep all the notes because now we're fully capitalized. We have a track record. We have performance. We so not only do we keep all the notes, we're actively buying the notes. So we're working with a lot of folks, especially in the Texas markets, that really want to sort of do the seller financing model and use it as a way to get additional, um, you know, profits on the same deal. Uh, assuming that they follow, you know, it's. I always say it's it's not uh, difficult. It's just complex, right. and it's there's a lot of moving parts to seller financing and. Uh, you know, there's underwriting, there's the RMLO, there's Dot Frank, there's, you know, keeping the mortgage qualified and all this stuff. It's not there again. It's not difficult. It's just complex. You just got to know how to do it, how to set it up and structure. And as of, as of, you know, all the deals that we've done, obviously we've become pretty, um, pretty efficient and, um, you know, good at what we do. So we work a lot with a lot of other, um, um, Investors that like the model are in the same position we were in six or seven years ago that, okay, well, this is great. Maybe maybe they have a couple hundred thousand dollars. Well, pick any number you want, whether it be a hundred thousand dollars, be a million dollars. At the end of the day, you're going to run out of capital when the seller finance is not. There's no way around it because if you, even though you're getting great returns on that, on that note you write, you still have to outlay whatever the cost was to be able to get those returns. So, Unless you're sitting on a big stack of cash, that money eventually runs out, which it did for us. So now we're able to come back in and we work with these guys and go, well, you know, maybe you can't keep all the notes. Or maybe you you write four notes, sell them, make $20,000 each on them, and then sell, then get that eighty dollars or $100,000 and just keep the next one. Sell four, keep the next. Sell four, keep the next. And then build up your portfolio slowly that way without having to go and uh, do it. Because banks don't loan 
it's very difficult for banks to get a to get a bank to understand what you're doing because they like to loan on physical assets. They want you can go down and get a, a loan for a brick and mortar house that you're gonna that you're going to turn around and make it a buying hold and rent it out. You can do that all day long. They get that. You know, you can go borrow seventy cents on the dollar, eighty cents on the dollar, and use the property as collateral. But in a seller financing model, once you transfer that deed of ownership, which is what we do in the state of Texas, other states are different. There's land trust, and some people hold the deed or lease options. But in the state of Texas, we transfer the deed of ownership. So when I sell that property to the borrower, or the buyer, they take that. They take deed. So now I'm holding a piece of paper that says you're going to pay me X amount of dollars per month for principal and interest and I'm going to have the first lien position just like Chase or Bank of America or Wells Fargo has on your primary residence it's no different but if I have that paper it's just not as it's just not as it's just hard to comprehend there's a lot of there's a lot of guide uh, regular regulatory and compliance things that banks have to do and honestly banks are sort of lazy and if they don't they don't have to do they don't have to go outside the box. They got enough stuff sitting right there in front of them to be able to capitalize on and, and make money. So uh, you can take it to the bank. The idea, the, the better solution is if you want to do that, just go take it to a private, a private lender, and then you can basically maybe arbitrage at two or three points. You know, maybe you borrow money at seven or eight percent. You know, on seventy thousand dollars of debt, but you're writing a note at nine or ten percent on a hundred thousand dollars, and then you make the spread. You can do that too. Right. So let's go back to when you actually find these properties, you fix them up, now you're going to sell them. For the people that have never tried to do this before, how are you finding these end buyers? Because this isn't like, you know, building a buyer's list for a wholesaler. You know, you can go to a Facebook group and say, hey, I'm building my cash buyer's list and you'll get 100 emails right away. So how are you finding these end buyers? Well, I, think, I think you just answered the question. It's the same, it's the same way. Is what people don't realize if you if you don't know what you're looking for you're not going to find it and you'd be surprised. I would just tell somebody you know what next property you get just for just for giggles go post it on Facebook Marketplace or go post it on Craigslist or do whatever and tell them you have a seller finance property uh, and see what kind of responses you get. There's a lot of people out there that cannot go down to the banks, especially in today's. You know we're in 2018 now. Ten years ago. The number of entrepreneurs or self-employed individuals um, was far less than, than there are today. There's there's not ju there's just not as many pretty borrowers uh, in the bank size today as there was 10 years ago. There, especially after 2007, 2008. Now, right for example, the average credit score of a declined application. I haven't checked it in about six months. When I checked it last, probably about the first of the year, was like 710. Average credit score of a declined application for a home loan, the 700 was a credit score of 710. Because there's other factors that go in it besides credit score. There's DTI, right. are they a W-2 employee? All these, all these factors that just, if you don't check all the boxes, you just don't get the deal. I mean, I'm a perfect example of it, and you probably are as well. It would be yep. very difficult for me to walk into Chase Bank and say, I'm looking to buy a house, I need a home loan. Right, because that's not how that's not how we're structured these days. It's a whole different, you know. You know, I get dividends. I don't get. I'm not a W two employee. All those things, all those things, negatively affect your ability to go out and and borrow in today's in, in today's environment. 
Yeah, I was talking to uh, someone else, and, and they're a multifamily investor, and he was laughing. He was like, well, you don't understand, RJ, because you haven't gotten into the multifamily world yet, is that it would be easier for you to go to a bank and get a $5 million loan for a multifamily complex because it's an asset-based loan, and they want to look at the cash flow than it is for you to go in and get a $150,000 loan for just a single-family property. And I laughed because I knew he was right because no matter what, I mean, it, it is difficult to get those loans unless you have an established relationship. But I mean, it, it's like pulling teeth to get, just walk into a bank and just get a regular loan on a, a single family property. So I, I definitely understand what you're talking about because uh, I'm a very logical person and dealing with banks just sometimes is not very logical. So. You, you, you couldn't have said it any better. It's 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 very. I'm, I'm the same way. I'm I'm very operational and very logical and in, in mindset. And I go, how do you not see the value in this? Right. How do you not see that this is a safer, more secure investment than what you're right now? Right now, it's crazy because you know Freddie and Fannie, they're buying stuff. You know, right off the right off the closing, right at right outside of closing and paying 103, 104, 105 percent for these. These what I would call these pretty loans because the borrower checks all the boxes. You know, the guy that works for Free to Lay or you know HP or Exxon or somebody like that has got a good job. But look, let me tell you right now, it's not a matter if; it's just when that becomes a problem. Because when you're on a 30-year note and you got a job at a and you're a, uh, a middle-class uh, uh, citizen and have a good-paying job and you have a nine-to-five and you get all that stuff. Those jobs go away pretty quick. I mean, yeah. we, see, we see stuff happening all the time. So then what happens? Now you're left holding the bag. And let me tell you this. The, when, the, when, the, when, the, when, the, when it hit the fan in 06, 07, 08, when it all started there, the people that were defaulting and the loans that were, uh, that were being uh, uh, not paid weren't the, weren't the seller finance guys that were getting 20% down. The hard workers that were self-employed, those guys have to continue, continue to, to do what they do. The, the people that were, the, the issue came from the fact of the, of the bar, borrowers that I just described. That's where all the problem came from. It didn't come from the, didn't come from the, the lower, the lower tier blue collar uh, worker that we're talking about here. That's, that's the, you know, that's a fundamental, fundamental piece of this whole model is that Look, we want to put we want to put hardworking people in the properties uh, that want home ownership. It's just that simple. And at the end of the day, our our main objective is to be able to put them in there so they can have home ownership equal to or as close to possible to what it would cost them to rent that house for the same price. Just that simple. So we're not going into you know higher level price properties, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollar houses where they don't where you're, you're hoping for, uh, you know, future appreciation to make money. That's not what we, that's not what we do. You know, we're, we're talking about the stuff that's in the 10 to 20% underneath the, the, the median price point. That's, that's the ultimate focus point. And, you know, that's why the wholesaling piece is such a critical part. It doesn't really wholesaling is just an extension of a lead, right? So at the end of the day, it's all about the lead. It doesn't matter if you're a if you're a buy and hold investor. It doesn't matter if you're uh, a fix and flipper. You're commercial. You're a lender. You're a seller finance investor. You, it all has to start with some property. 
doesn't matter what it is. I mean, right. you have to acquire a property at some point in the process to be able to do any of those strategies. Well, wholesaling is, is the perfect vehicle for that. And that's why we, even today, we still are very active in that space because even though it doesn't all fit into my buy box, it fits in somebody else's. And as you all know, um, from a wholesaler's perspective, you don't always get everything you go after for, right? Sometimes you get collateral deals as a result of it. Well, that house sold here, but how about, I've got 10 other houses over here in a, in a whole other county and zip code that you weren't even looking for. Right. And, you know, that, that, you know, that comes about, or you just, uh, you know, you're looking for something that you want to buy and hold, but what happens when you get a $250,000 house that doesn't really fit a buy and hold strategy? And maybe it's a fix and flip property. Well, guess what? That's why wholesaling is so beneficial because then you have the relationship established and by sending those back out, you can basically wholesale and then you keep the stuff that you want to keep for your own, you know, for your own portfolio. Plus with wholesaling, you know, it, it kind of evolves just like your business did. You know, when we started out as wholesaling, it, it never entered my mind that just a couple of years later, I would then turn around and be buying properties from other wholesalers that were just getting started. But I find myself doing it almost on a weekly basis. Like there's a property that got sent to me on Friday night and it just came to my email and I, I read it and I was like, this deal is too good to be true. I, I can't even believe this just got emailed to me. And I didn't, I, I spent like four minutes doing research on it and said, send me the assignment because this is exactly what I'm looking for. And, and that's just kind of how your business evolves over time. But, you know, wholesaling allows you to do that because you're constantly building relationships with people. You're always getting your brand out there to people. And so eventually you end up on other wholesalers list. And then as Absolutely. you grow as a business person, you start buying their properties. It's just a natural evolution of uh, being a wholesaler. Well, and the beauty of that is that, you know, it's funny when we first started, you know, we we played in the uh, we played in the space below the hedge fund. Hedge funds got real popular, you know, five, six, seven years ago, and they had a very specific buy box, right? They wanted they want three bedroom, two bath, nineteen eighty construction or newer, certain zip codes. Well, that, that's great. I have no desire for any of that stuff. I like the stuff that's older than that. I like the, the mid century stuff, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, you know, stuff. Uh, right. You know. Uh, Three bedroom, one bath, and one car garage. Those kind of things. That stuff that nobody really wants because those properties at the time, those were not really ideal for fix and flip. You're not gonna turn around and fix and flip that and sell for retail and make any, any kind of uh, significant return. And they're surely not buying whole properties. I mean, why would you buy? I mean, most people that understand rentals and buying whole, you don't go out and buy a 1950 house right. and cash flow it. I mean, that's just that doesn't make sense. You go after something newer. So, but like you said, you know, wholesaling is a revolving door. And what's great about it is that sometimes stuff comes in and sometimes stuff goes out. And like you said, I have, I, I would probably, you know, we'll probably do, an, uh, I don't really know the exact number. We'll probably do a hundred transactions this year. And I would say, I don't get, I can't, I can't find all those deals myself. They have to come from other sources like wholesalers. You know, uh, sometimes they come direct from seller, but I would say probably 70% of my volume probably has to come from other wholesalers because it's not, doesn't fit their, 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 their investors buy box. See, I'm in a little bit unique situation because I can go after the stuff that nobody else really wants. And I sort of built the model around that. So right. 
Um, but, you know, it's a great business. And, you know, plus the other thing is that I would say is that the, what I started doing, which for, for those that do also, you know, it's really got to figure out a way to do creative deal structure. Because when you're negotiating deals, for example, a home investor, a home investor franchisee, you know, they have a very specific buy box, right? Call it 65 cents on the dollar net after repairs. Well, what happens if the seller really wants to sell and they they have they owe 80, 80 cents on the dollar? I mean, right? They owe 80, they're at 80 cents uh, versus 65 where you need to be. Well, doesn't mean that you can't still do a deal. There has to be some other creative deal structure, whether maybe you're buying it on terms, maybe you're doing a subject to or a wrap or, you know, buying it out on payments. But don't walk away from the deal just because you think the buyer wants cash. Because I'm telling you right now, there's just as many buyers, excuse me, just because a seller wants cash. There's just as many sellers out there that don't want cash that do. And once people understand that they don't have to just, you know, offer cash every time, you know, learn those, learn those, you know, those techniques because you spend a lot of money going out and trying to, trying to, you know, find motivated sellers. And right. you don't want, you know, you know, everybody has a different cost per lead or cost per acquisition, but you need to repurpose those leads and you need to figure out any way it takes to get to be able to monetize them so that, you know, you can turn around and make money. That's what this is all about. So, it's funny you bring that up because we just had something happen this week and it, it I've never had something like this happen, but it, it, it goes back to what you're talking about being creative with your offer. We got a lead. It was five occupied rental properties in a very nice neighborhood in Fort Worth. The problem with the properties was the rent rate was a little low. The taxes have been increasing. They've not been protesting the taxes. And so their cash flow over time has gone down. They got a postcard from us. They call us. We run the numbers. We understand that our offer is extremely low compared to what the market value of these properties is, but we're basing our offer off the cash flow that's currently coming in. So I talk to my acquisitions person and I tell them, look, I want you to make a couple of offers on this one, the cash offer, but also ask them if they'd be willing to seller finance these properties to us. And maybe we can make the seller financing number, what they're going to net if they sell or finance close to what their current cash flow has been on the properties. So we make these two offers. They decide they don't want to sell the properties. They want to leave the properties to their kids. Okay. That sucks. We didn't get the deal. But because we were creative with our offer, they said, hey, we really liked how y'all just structured that. And we're not really real estate investors. We just own these couple of properties, but we understand the value. We've done some research on your company, and we were curious how y'all were going to handle this. Would y'all be interested in having somebody come on and invest in you guys passively as a private money lender? So because of how we handled that situation... And we made a creative offer. It kind of intrigued them. They did some more research on us and then called us back. And now they want to be a private money lender. You never really know how those those leads are going to go. And I don't think that's going to happen very often. But it is extremely important to be creative with your offers, not just always stick to, like you said, that, that buy box, which is, you know, it's 65% of ARV minus repairs. And that's my offer and just walk away. Um, you know, being creative can make other people think creatively and, and 
open up opportunities for you. So I well, appreciate you bringing that up just so I can kind of share that story because I thought that was an, an awesome experience for our acquisitions person and just for our company as a whole. Well, just just uh, the touch on that a little bit more in detail, especially for all the listeners you have, is that that's why I like to be uh, – uh, I'm transparent in everything that I do and I say because, look – this is a huge opportunity. We're just talking about the tip of the iceberg. If you look at 99% of the transactions that are done in real estate, they're all, they're most of the investors that are in it, they, they do one or two transactions a year. Right. Uh, you know, they're just not that, the, the number of uh, investors that do, you know, multiple properties in any capacity is just, it's very small. It's very fragmented industry. I don't have a problem sharing because look, there's a lot of stuff that I can't, I can't eat. You know, it's a 10,000 pound elephant. I can kill it and I can slay it. And, <laughs> but I can, I can only eat so much of it before it rots and it's no longer good. Well, so, you know, by, by, by doing, you know, good for others and sharing the information experience that we have, and maybe, maybe they can, they can feed off of it right now. And maybe they'll go catch something later and they can't eat it all. And they pass it back on. It just, it goes back and forth. And it really what it boils down to is like, you know, you see a lot of these signs, you see bandit signs all over the place, you know, most places, you know, you know, it's like, Oh man, they're selling houses, but those are great leads because if you're selling a house, guess what you have to do before you sell it? You got to buy it. It's got to come from someplace, right? So it's a two way street. So all those signs I see, I call every one of them because they're, they're actively hustling a property that they found. Well, what if I have a house and I don't really want to sell it? It's an area that I want. Well, you like co-hosting it. I mean, it's just coming up with strategies. You don't have to lock yourself in a box that that you know that limits your ability to really be creative to be able to be able to get these deals. And that's what I love about real estate in general. And just all any, it doesn't matter what vertical you choose. They there's still creativity and that that's needed in any of those. So it's funny you bring that up. I'm going to go ahead and use this moment, this platform, to go ahead and answer the question. Since I've created the podcast, I randomly get people that listen to an episode, and then they find me on Facebook, and they send me a message. And I get at least once a week a new wholesaler ask me, I have a property under contract. I'm trying to sell it. I don't have any cash buyers. But I do know this other wholesaler who says they could co-wholesale with me and we could JV and split the profits. Should I do this? To everyone who ever thinks that they need to ask me that question, the answer is, hell yes, you need to do it. Co-wholesale with somebody. Get 100% of zero is still zero. Like, go out and move the property. Get your money and get some experience and maybe learn something from the more experienced wholesalers. So I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, well you know you know it's you know it's it's education. You know you go to college, you pay to go to college if you if you choose right. to go down that road, right? You go to trade school, you got to pay to do that. You pay them to learn, right? This is different. You're actually going to get the make money to learn, even though it might not be at 100. percent But like you said, you know 100. percent Hundred percent of nothing, fifty percent of something's better than one hundred percent of nothing. And you know, now you got to protect yourself, and you can't. There's a lot of people you got to be careful of, and you know who you're doing business with. But there's a way to protect yourself. I mean, I would strongly suggest what I used to do uh, with, when I was dealing with people that I didn't know is that I'd have it under contract, and then I would go and uh, 
I'd get a, I'd file an MOA on the property, which is a memorandum, which is basically says that there's somebody has the rights to this property. So that is basically putting a pile on title. So that when it does go to title, somebody tries to circumvent you, which sellers have done to try to have tried to do in the past. And you may have had this experience as well, where they go and, you know, okay, now, because I'm not the only one knocking on their door trying to buy their property. Well, I give them an offer and then two days later, you know, RJ comes knocking on the door and offers them $10,000 more. All of a sudden, they're not interested in dealing with me. So there's ways to protect yourself. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not an attorney. I'm not going to pretend to be one. But, you know, there's definitely ways to protect yourself once you have a contract, you know, and, you know, have some kind of uh, financial consideration that's been made to yeah, control I mean, that property. The other aspect of that is is figure out who you're doing business with. I mean, nowadays with social media and the Internet, it's pretty simple to figure out if the person you're doing business with is someone of integrity and character and the, the amount of volume that they're doing as a business person. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, I still call wholesale deals with people all the time. I mean, I get a property and, and I just either my marketing attempts didn't reach the right buyer or uh the buyer that I thought I would have for that particular property is overwhelmed and they're not buying right now, whatever the situation is, but another wholesaler might have a buyer just sitting there waiting for that property. So it's, it's just very important to, to keep your options and your opportunities open. So appreciate you bringing that up. So uh, I always like to wrap up these interviews by kind of figuring out, you know, what your why is, um, you know, you've been doing this since the early 2000s and then, you know, you went back to corporate America, realized that wasn't for you. And now, you know, you've got this machine going a hundred deals a year, you know, seller financing, creating these notes. What, what's your driving force? What's your why behind what you're doing? Well, I mean, I just don't want to have to rely on anybody else uh, for my success or my livelihood. You know, um, you know, I, you know, when I grew up, you know, it was, you know, go get a good job, go work nine to five, you know, get your two weeks of vacation a year, you know, retire and, you know, and, you know spend your last golden years doing whatever the heck you want to do. I mean, um, you know, I don't, I, I call it, I just, that's just not in my DNA. I mean, that's a great solution for somebody that, 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 that doesn't have that, uh, um, uh, that isn't really concerned about that. They like that, that consistency and that, that regimented style. I just, I, I just don't like, you know, I don't want to get burned. And I think that's, I see that a lot of times with friends and family and just across the, you know, the United States is that, you know, most people are operating, you know, and living, you know, paycheck to paycheck. They're, uh, you know, they're one paycheck away from, you know, being in a uh, undesirable situation. And if through real estate, even if that's, if you want to continue to work in that capacity, that's, that's great. And I did it for many, many, many years. I probably would still have done it, still do it to, today if I had, if I had another vehicle to, that I could fall back on. You know the ability to get in and get some kind of passive income to offset that in you know the, in case of a rainy day, and I never had that. I was never taught that. But today, people that listen on this podcast, all that information is readily available. There's no reason that you can't just go out and start doing deals, get a contract, get a contract, and then figure it out. And with that, you know you don't have to 
you know, you don't have to take the leap of faith like I did and uh, or others do. You know, you know, test the water, dip, put the toe in first. Go, you know, like you said, go wholesale, go co-wholesale a deal or two to get comfortable. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to put all your chips in in the beginning and and go chasing and seeing if this is really going to work. And I will tell you this: I don't really care what you decide you want to do, whether you want to buy and hold, fix and flip, wholesale, create notes, write notes, do construction. It really makes no difference. You can make money and significant money in any one of those. What it really boils down to is just getting off the couch and going and doing something and making a commitment to do it and trusting that you have, uh, you know, confidence in your ability to figure it out. You don't have to know everything. In fact, even in my company today, if if you ask me a question and I know the answer, that's probably that's not necessarily a good thing because I might not be focusing on what I really should be doing, which is growing the business. You know, there's people that I have on my team that, you know, I can ask how many properties did we sell last month or what's our average cost per lead or what's our average profit per deal. I mean, I know what that is, but I but I have the ability to go and get it. This is no different. You got to walk before you run, pick, take it slow, find a deal, partner with somebody that you trust. And, you know, I do that all the time. I mean, I work with, I work with investors, you know, with, you know, they want to wholesale deals. Look, I, I've been doing this a long time and there's nothing that I get more enjoy, uh, enjoyment out of and is really helping other people that really want to help themselves. And I'm not, I'm not a charity from that perspective. I mean, you, you got to put in the work, but I will show you what I would do and how I do it. And just like you would to really, because there's, there's great satisfaction in helping people, whether it's in real estate or just in life in general, you know, give them, give them a hand to help them up, you know, just to, to get them going down the right path. That's really what we're doing with the seller financing program. It's really no different. We're helping hardworking families obtain home ownership when they've been told time and time again that they can't own because of right. some situation in their life. And it's no different than, you know, with a real estate investor, just pointing them in the right direction and giving them the right tools. You know, it's like this. I can give you, uh, you know, I can put you in the, in, in the woods and I can, you know, you, can, you have to get yourself out. But if I give you a GPS, you can figure out how to get out. Like, I'm not going to tell you how to get out. I'm not going to walk you out. Here's your, here's the tool. Here's a tool that will help you get out. You got to figure out how to use that tool to do so. And this is no different. Right. I mean, I, it's funny you bring that up because I get asked all the time, Hey man, I want to get started. Will you coach me? Will you mentor me? Uh, you know, there's a certain amount of people that I've taken on in that regard, but I'm not a coach. I'm a real estate investor. So I tell them, go find a deal, find a deal, bring me the address. I'll pull comps for you. I'll, I'll walk you through. I'll tell you what your offer should be. Go get the property under contract. I'll either buy it myself or I'll help you wholesale it and I'll split the deal with you. It's that simple. And they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know where to find a house. Start driving. Just drive around. There's this app, Driving for Dollars. You can go find five houses right now for free and it'll give you all of the contact information. I mean, it's like, it's, it's that simple. Um, it, so... For people that are out there and they're thinking and they're on the fence about getting started, you, you just have to, to make that leap of faith. Like Nick said, you don't have to go quit your job, but you have to go take action of some sort. And and you can't just sit back and, and hope that someone's going to lead you, like you said, through the forest. You know, the GPS yeah. is there. Yeah, I learned. Um, I, you just got to use it. 
I learned a long time ago, hope is not a good business strategy. So, you know, and you don't need a lot of money to really get started in this. And I mean, when, when you say, you know, you can do real estate with no money out of pocket, it's true because I'll tell you what, if you bring me a deal and you find it, I will figure out a way to, to get that deal done and cost you a nickel. Now, you might have to be the one that oversees the, the rehab or sales, but that's not any money out of pocket, right? I mean, you have to find the inventory. You'd be surprised. You would be surprised, and this is a, this is a this is something that um, I would uh, encourage everybody that's listening to at least try. Find get your list of friends and families, contacts, whatever. Pick your top one. Pick your top one hundred, and tell them what you're doing. You know, look, I'm I'm in the real estate. I'm in real estate. I am looking for properties to buy. I'm cash buyer. Um, and send that information out, you would be surprised how many people either are in that situation or know somebody that has a property that they're looking that they're looking to do something with. Now, is it going to always be a deal? No, but that's not the point. The point is, all you have to do is ask. There's nothing, it's not threatening. It's just, hey, I'm looking to buy a property. Do you know anybody that's selling? I mean, of course. I mean, everything, everybody has referrals. And you do this in your everyday life. If you want to... If you're looking for a place to eat, you go, hey, I'm looking for an Italian restaurant. I'm going to be in Dallas. What do you, what do you know? I'm going to tell you, well, it didn't cost you anything. And it was just asking the question. It's no different. Just ask. You don't have to. It's not like you're trying to sell them a vacuum cleaner or something. You're actually, got the, you're actually on the other side now. You're actually a buyer. Buyers right. have control. I mean, buyers, you're helping people out of a situation. That's the other beauty that we never really talk about is that, People think that wholesaling has some negative connotation sometimes because you're you're buying properties at just deep discounts, but a lot of times you're really helping a seller with a problem that they can't figure out and solve themselves. So it's not always about the money; it's about just you know releasing them from the stress or the you know whatever it's that's tying them down that they're they're really trying to get out of. So. It's just being a just being a problem solver is really what it boils down to. One of the first things I learned in real estate investing is always ask because if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Yeah, you can't so, say it better than that. Right. So that that's one of something one of my mentors taught me, and I've basically that's been one of our core values since day one. So. Speaking of that, we're going to wrap up this interview because now I'm going to ask Nick to buy a property from me. Excellent. So, I hope you have more than so, one to sell me. I need, I'm, I'm a little short right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to sell them too right after this podcast interview. So, Nick, thank you so much for sitting down with us and, and sharing your business model. Um, it's been great to get to know you. You're another Investor Fuel member. Uh, so I appreciate uh, everything that you've helped us out in, in Investor Fuel and then also coming on the podcast and sharing your story with us. Well, I appreciate that, RJ. And I do want to make sure that I say, uh, you know, thanks to you, not only for what you're doing with the, with the podcast, but also what you're doing with uh, the, uh, the uh, charity that you have with the Beat Kids Cancer. I think that's uh, you, very, uh, very important. I hope and encourage everybody that's listening to go check it out. Uh, I know they can they can access through the Facebook site yes. through the podcast, but uh, very very noble, very uh, very much needed, and I I thoroughly appreciate the uh, the opportunity to the the play in the golf tournament that you're putting on in in October, and uh, look forward to maybe helping out in some other capacity. Awesome, buddy! Thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, all the best. Now go get a deal. All right. All right. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Titanium Vault with your host, R.J. Bates III. For more info and to stay up to date, visit www.podcast.thetitaniumvault.com and on facebook.com slash thetitaniumvault. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time on the Titanium Vault.